And now, do you go by Kimberly or Kim? I go by Kimberly. Okay, excellent. See, that's why you ask. Some people like to assume. My first name is Matthew, and I am all about not being called Matt. It's not something, I'm not something you wipe your feet on. Um, <laughs> yeah. and, I love that. Yeah, and typically people um, that use the, the name Matt will try to be using it as a way to build a connection with me, an artificial one, because I have never gone by that name. Most people I, don't Yeah, I know. But if you're saying that to me under the pretense that, you know, we're kind of close, it's like, dude, you don't know who I am. Is Matt there? Nope. No Matt lives here. <laughs> I know Matt's and like Matthew from the Bible, but I don't know any other Matthews. So um, that's a great segue to what we're going to be uh, discussing today. We have Kimberly Braun, who is a former monastic nun, a master's in theology, a TEDx speaker, um, meditation faculty at Omega Institute. How are you doing today, Kimberly? I'm doing great. Happy to be here with you both. That's awesome. We're super happy to have you. Um, I was looking through your background and uh, we were excited that you had signed up. Um, I love meditation. Um, it's something that, that helped me change my life. And I was super fascinated when I saw you come across our desk because I feel like the meditation world has not crossed over into what is a Western religion view of like Catholicism and Christianity. It doesn't seem to be as openly discussed, the meditation piece and how that is, you know, centered to, you know, what it is that you're trying to take care of within yourself. Yeah, you know, that's a really good point. And I know when I was in the monastery, the words meditation and contemplation were used for the opposite than what our culture uses as mm. well which I find really interesting when I left and got into seminary training. And then, of course, began to explore the many paths in awakening. So, but when I've been down that road, you're right, there seem to be certain hesitancies. Mm. Like sometimes there's hard no's just because of where something is traced to have its origin, whether it's a location or a tradition or a person. But there's also hesitancy because of the unfamiliarity of what it's about and the fact that it's being introduced in complementary nature to a faith tradition instead of from the heart of the tradition. That's a brilliant way to put it because a lot of people do take the baggage that comes with it or what is the background to the particular scenario. Because if people are talking about meditation, typically they're discussing a particular area of the world. They're discussing, you know, yoga. They're discussing some kind of, um, you know, holistic treatment of whatever it might be. But at the end of the day, um, monks in Catholicism would be doing the same thing and examining themselves and meditating themselves and coming to conclusions, not being told what they need to know. And that's kind of my take on it. And I find that beautiful. And I don't think that enough people know that that exists within Christianity in today's society. Yeah, you know, what's so interesting about that too is a couple of years ago, I developed an online course going into the mystical teachings of Teresa of Avila. And she, in, in her growing up years into her early 20s, was in a culture where you were discouraged from praying. Mm. Where you were actually, yeah, right, right, right. Isn't that interesting? Now, that's a whole other theological. Oh, absolutely. Uh, but 
but but what was amazing about part of her path was that her deep inner longing for union led her to question it, not question it in a rebellious way, but question it from a deep, humble, open-hearted way uh, to God. And in that, she discovered that for her and what she then passed on to others was that we're actually all meant to have these communing moments, if you will. Mm. Because we're one entity and at the end of the day, um, we're viewing ourselves from within ourselves. Um, I don't think a lot of people realize that the faces that we cross in life are a mirror. They're simply other versions of yourself looking back at you. Um, yeah. It's how you interpret it. We'll take it and give it some kind of definition that has malice or whatever it might be, you know, we'll associate it with something. But at the end of the day, it's your reaction inside of yourself to yourself um, and how you feel about that person. Um, it's really weird. I, I, I only scratched the surface myself in figuring these things out. And that's, again, through meditation. Um, so what I'd like to do is give you the opportunity to tell me, you know, or tell us how you became a nun, how you got into that life. You know, that is, that is a huge commitment. Yeah. So I'd love to hear, you know, what happened to Kimberly with pigtails that ended up being Kimberly and <laughs> the nun, because that's, that's a huge leap for anybody. It's massive, right? Yeah, it's a really big, really, really, really big leap. And it's even when I look at it culturally, some areas of the world are a bit more set up with monastic life being integrated mm. as a common part of a life path, even if it's just for a period of time. But we don't have that uh, so strongly in our culture. You know, it's, it's a really fun story, but I, I think the real start of that comes from my earliest years. I was experiencing, I was experiencing what I would call unitive states or states of very deep bliss mm. where the veils on this world, where the veils seem to pull back and time seemed to stop. And I found myself, I, I use the language of beloved, that's my spirituality language, where the beloved was pulling me into the deeper essential nature of reality and the presence of the eternal in all of time as well. So in the face of having these experiences and the setups were diverse. Uh, I loved ritual, loved ritual. Ritual, ritual scares people. It's totally scares people, right? It feels controlling, it feels rote. It feels, there's a lot of things, but for me, it was like jumping off the precipice into the unknown. And as an adventurer, a mystic adventurer, ritual let me step to the end of all I knew and I could just say, take me or show mm, me. Or, that's a great point. And so it was in ritual, but it was also in nature. And then it was in my family relationships where these instances kept happening, where I was experiencing the sweetness, the sweetness of the beloved. And that was massive for me. And it formed a worldview for me. It, it touched upon, I had some deep trauma and loss when I was little, and it provided context and nonverbal answers to many of these. That's things. a lot of comfort that many people don't get at that age. 
um, those years are extremely influential. And one would argue that the first seven are what's going to shape the adult that stands before you. And if you don't have the ability or the capability to be mindful like you were or blessed with the ability to have something give you that mindfulness into reality and the nature of who we are and the fact that it is beautiful, because I think that we fail to recognize that there is no such thing as time. Um, like you said, it's a veil and that we are only in one location and that is the present. And it's aptly called that because it's a gift. And I think that we have a romantic relationship with that as a child, but then that becomes shattered somewhere after that seventh year. And we no longer have that same relationship with the world around us where we're I like to think of it as people walking into Disney World. If you sit and you look backwards at people walking into Disney World, they stare in amazement and wonder. They're excited. They want to come in. It's their thing. But that's only on the faces of one set of people. That's the people that see it the first time. <laughs> well, that's true for 95% because I still fall in the category of you're, being like a five-year-old. I get there, I'm like... But you're being yourself. You're not repressed within yourself where you will not be as authentic or childlike because of the way that people might perceive you as an adult running around Disney World, you know, making faces at things. So, but why I say that is because we... We don't have the same wonder moment to moment that we would if, you know, everything were spectacular time after time. We're expecting something different. But in reality, we should be respecting the moment that we have. And that is the present. It's a gift. And I like to hear that, you know, as a child, you were already experiencing that and recognizing it. So that's amazing. Yeah, I was, I know that those are some great graces. Uh, and it's a worldview that has not grown dim. It's it's still influencing me to this day, which tells me it was a truly divine experience because I think it's those timeless experiences and we all have them. I've been working with hundreds of thousands of people. I've been working post-monastery for 22 years out in the field and I can facilitate anybody coming back into contact with at least one timeless experience and the quality will still be alive, even if it's been pushed down under a lot of stress and trauma. And when they discover that, they find that they have a stepping stone to realize that their life can have that quality to it. But you're right, as a, a young child, so formed by this, I had a second personality trait that was helpful and that I'm insanely curious. So when these things were happening, I'm like, wow, I want more of this. This is what yeah. it's about. What is it? What is it? It's the right age oh. to have it happen. The mind is exploring because that's when children ask the most ridiculous questions. Why? 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 But they ask them with simplicity. We overcomplicate them. And they're the ones asking them for face value. I said it on the show the other day. I heard a child say, why do we eat chickens if they lay eggs and it's an endless amount? <laughs> I was like, stop making sense. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> but it's awesome. so simple. It's true. <laughs> I love that. That's really good. <laughs> so, it, well, they do taste good. Then they do. Yeah, right. <laughs> protein, maybe? Yeah, well, I'd probably need the protein, but I think I have protein. But yeah. Um, 
before we go further into it, I want to give Gary a chance to kind of weigh in here because this is something that we discuss a lot. Um, not that Gary is anti-spiritual religion, anything like that, but um, we discuss the fact that I meditate a lot. Um, I have some different viewpoints on things and I try to explain to him, but I'd love for him to be able to ask you, um, someone who is very experienced in, in this field from all different directions, um, to maybe, uh, you know, give you a chance to air out those understandings. I have a couple of questions. When you brought up ritual, and I think you said that scares people. So I don't know what that is. So I think a lot of listeners may not know. And then the other big, um, I grew up in the Catholic church. I no longer really identify with the organization of religion. I, I consider myself somewhat spiritual, but I don't want to put a label on it because I don't understand. I, I believe there's a higher power, but I don't know what it is. I don't, you know, that's kind of like where I, I believe there's a higher power. I am a spiritual person. I grew up, my mom worked at the church for 35 years. So I grew up in Catholic church, Italian Catholic family. But as far as I think like people have their preconceived notion of what a religion is. And then when you add stuff to it, it might've been there the whole time, but when they hear it for the first time, they call like, you know, that's BS. You know, Catholics don't meditate just because they haven't heard of it before. In their mind, it's like, this is an old religion. Like, can't add stuff now. But that's just because you didn't have all the information, I think is what happens a lot with, you know, adding meditation. Like, we think of that as like Buddhists or Hindu or we just, we just don't know. You know, and I think of like, people got the education and, you know, we get one thing, whatever church you grow up in, in whatever little town or big town, mm. like you're in, and whichever priest or nun you had as a teacher, like that's what you know about that religion. Like, for, I think more now because the internet and everything, but growing up, I knew what I'd learned at St. John Vianney Church in Mentor, Ohio. Like, and that's like, this is what Catholicism, this is the religion you are, this is you're supposed to be, and this is how it is. I think breaking that is like hard sometimes for people because they, you're almost guilty if they like believe it's something different than what they learn. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there is a certain attachment we get to some of our ideas around not only what these structures are, but uh, what our fidelity to the structure is and what the structure is supposed to represent because it, it, forms, it forms a certain security, you know, and, and a security that is belonging, a sense of meaning in life, uh, a sense of a place where we can, we can learn or we can celebrate parts of ourselves or special moments in our lives. You know, so I'm not Catholic anymore either, but speaking to it, just looking at the Catholic church, there are lots of pieces that when somebody says yes to it, it's sad to not have that anymore. I mean, look at how many people don't go to church, but will always baptize their kids and have the beautiful mm. celebration and ritual because there's something there that speaks, I believe, to the spirit in the center of the human. That there's something that's alive there for it. And ritual, when you, when you study it from sociologically and psychologically, so my seminary training, talk about like a miracle. I was I came out of the monastery and I had this golden age of being in grad school and seminary where it was small, it was progressive. There were people from all over the world. Mm. And I got it's to important. my program just so long as I had a few of the basics in all my seminary training. 
I got to form it. So part of my passion was to understand these mechanisms of living in the present moment, of uh, stepping in. What is the unknown? What does it mean to have a mystic life? What does it mean within all traditions? What it, What is even inspiration? Well, I, I studied ritual for a bit. And we psychologically and sociologically are set up to grow in healthiness amidst good ritual. For instance, think of the uh, think of the brain chemicals that are released when somebody gets up and has the ritual of a certain cup of coffee. Oh, that's amazing! You know, and, and parts <laughs> of the coffee, but more is the ritual of it. More is this sense of you're waking up to something warm, something that satisfies you, and all your brain chemicals really. So, so ritual works with our humanity in really amazing ways. And I think part of what we're experiencing in the Western culture of people running away from ritual and letting it all go is because many rituals aren't alive anymore. Like the cup of coffee, it speaks to you. You know, there's something, and it could be anything, but. You know, I, I love espresso. So, you know, if I were going to talk to it, it'd be espresso. Uh, <laughs> you know, there's something about that. And then, ooh, you just feel the movement and the energy of it. Well, our ritual is meant to be that alive. We're meant to be willing to do the difficult work of letting go from our rituals, things that don't work anymore, things that are are old in a way that they do not meet the human being where they are and replace it with elements, form and matter, with words and sounds and sensory things and flow of the liturgy that speaks to the human being. And that's a lot of work for somebody. Now, I'm into all that stuff, but most people, I shouldn't say most people, um, it's hard work in organizations to want to do the work to keep things alive. Because it takes a dismantling of things and a willing to destroy what's not working. And, and that, there's a lot involved in that, especially if you're a team working on something. So that's how I might say something about ritual. And If I may, on the, on the ritual piece, because I, I do like um, what you were explaining. And for me, one of the things that uh, I had to take into consideration when it comes to ritual is that because we're so, we, we lack such presence and that we're living in this imagery mind of future and past. Um, I call it imagery because it's imagination and memory, um, and it's not rooted in the now. But because you're spending all that time focusing on everything else, to take on a ritual allows you the ability to move through specific steps, specific movements that require no thought. Once you can release yourself to those those take over and then you're allowed to observe yourself. The rituals remove that hindrance. They take away from the mind because it's giving it a pattern to sit in and move. Um, and then you're allowed to freely address yourself. Yeah, that's a really nice way to put it, right? It was hard for me. Um, meditation was hard, not because meditation is hard. Meditation was hard because I thought it was supposed to be hard. I was making it hard. I was doing things like taking over my breath. So to give you an example, I'm not religious either. 
Um, I am a spiritual person. I come from the philosophy that I believe religion is a pizza. It starts in the Mesopotamian River Valley and it grows out into a circle and that each slice has its own topping, but they're all telling the same damn story. Because if you walk over to one of those monks in Catholicism and you say, what happened when you sat there and shut your mind off and listened to God for X amount of time? Same thing that happened to the monk around the corner. I realized that it was all me, right? And that this is all a gift, things like that. So, you know, for me, faith and religion and trying to bridge that gap, because I grew up in a Southern Baptist church in South Florida. So it's a stark contrast to Catholicism, but that same, you know, dedication to what you may not even understand, right? Because I find that a lot. For myself, meditation allowed me to find the word faith. Because <sighs> faith was non-existent to me. I did not understand what the word faith meant. And I still struggle with it, right? But for me, <laughs> if I were to ask someone to meditate, the immediate inclination is to what? Take over your breath. If I say breathe, you're going to breathe for yourself. One, two, one, two. We take it over. We say things like catch your breath, right? Well, this is the most ignorant thing you can say. What else are you going to do? Die? No, you're going to catch your breath until you stop breathing so fast. But that breathing would have happened. And for me, in meditation, the moment that I was able to not breathe for myself and allow it to come back without question was the moment that I realized I had something to have faith in, and it was the return of breath. Oh, wow. That's powerful. It, it changed everything for me in that moment because I was like, well, shit, there is something to have faith in. Right. Yeah, I like that. I'm really happy for you. I appreciate that. Oh, long road to hoe. I'm nowhere near. <laughs> You're a Carmelite nun. Can you explain what a Carmelite nun is? Yeah, and I was. I was. Ten and a half years. Uh, so it's, a, it's being a monk. It's a monastic lifestyle. That's what the word monk means. Even though you're called a nun, I was a monastic. And I entered when I was 24 and left partway through my 34th year. And that is a very, if you were to think of Buddhist monasticism, shaved head, habit, up at midnight for chant and meditation and prayer, up again at 5.30, and then the day punctuated with many hours and rich, rich experiences, weaving meditation, chant, and prayer, meditation, chant, and prayer, and then what you might call inspired readings. Uh, we ate in silence. The monastery I joined, we lived off the land, about like 90% off the land. We wow. accepted the donation, 10%. The people who lived around us were beautiful farmers. And so once a year, they'd give us one of their cows. And oh, that's cool. Of course, we would, we would, you know, take that. And sometimes people would get us cheese. But uh, it's, it's a very simple lifestyle. And the whole charism, the entire charism is, means this, to walk in and embody the divine presence. So the whole goal of the life of charism is what the group is about, what their passion and focus is, and then how that ripples out into the world. So 
our life was one of service so that we would experience that level of awakening and that by virtue of that, we would be in service, that that awakening would happen for everybody, past, present, and future in the world. So, so that was it. And I was totally on fire when I joined. So I didn't join as a seeker. I joined as somebody like totally think about when you have been like really, really in love, even if it wasn't meant to be for a long time or a lifetime. All that goes on in you was going on between me and God. I mean, I was just, I was in long hours. Of, this sounds very autobiography of a yogi kind of scenario here. Totally <laughs> I'm, I'm totally hearing a very, uh, a tale that's rung through a lot of different people. If you go through and you read, a lot of the spiritual people out there had this passion from day one. I believe we all have it. I think that it exists within us um, as a flame and that we are placed under glass uh, through the teachings of our families, our society, how we live, we grow to it, right? Um, but I'm curious because I, I live on the theory that we're simply supposed to be authentic. And that is those types of actions would be your authentic inclination. Most people want to hand somebody something in need. They'll withhold it for whatever internal reason they have, whether it's self-preservation, family, whatever it is, but they have that inclination. So I believe that if you are acting as you are made and on your most natural whim, that you are not slapping whomever or whatever made you in the face thinking you can do it better. And I feel like part of that religious experience would be to discover that you're perfect the way you are. Yeah, that is part of the process for sure. And that uh, I, I don't like to refer too much to I, thou language because mm -hmm. I think there's a place for that. You know, it helps us get out of our own way. We have a lot of false ideas of ourselves, And when we have an I, thou spirituality, it lets us, let go of all these false ideas of ourselves. You know, the good ones, of, you know, I'm terrible, I'm holy, I'm like, whatever it is. We get all these ideas. All those learned shame and guilt. Yeah. Um, but eventually that I-thou dissolves. But in using the I-thou language, the beloved language, I think what we discover is we have no idea, no idea how much we are loved into existence. We, we are just tipping the iceberg in, in grasping, not just understanding with our minds, in grasping that reality that we actually breathed into existence. And with that is a, a, a tenderness and a knowing within our very fiber that is the place of all freedom. So as we're, we're discovering that, I think things like monastic life and that are a setup to give us a, a path that's focused mm. specifically on it, intentionally on it, mm. uh, daily on it. You know, everything we did was oriented towards all of that. Whereas, you know, in society, we are 100% made to live in all these juicy layers of society, these relationships and careers. And, you know, there's a beauty in that. There's a real power in all of that. But with that, there can be a bit of misunderstanding around that essential 
nature of our existence. And we displace that awareness into things that don't deserve our attention or don't deserve our power or don't deserve our fidelity Mm. to the degree that our essential nature does. And the more true, and I love that word authentic, we are to embodying that part of ourselves the more we discover all the other parts of being alive mm. are brimming with it and pulsing with that juice. And then we can be operating on those levels more. So that's me just reflecting back to you. Uh, I like that. What you're uh, saying. I heard someone say before that um, you cannot give until your own cup runneth over. Mm. And it makes sense. What am I giving somebody? The bottom half of my cold coffee? Or should I take care of my cup, warm it up, make sure it's ready, and then go out and share? Nobody wants your stinky cold coffee. Very true. (laughs) Actually, I hate cold coffee. It's a pet peeve of mine. Like iced coffee? Iced coffee is a no-go. I I hate iced coffee. Espresso is fantastic. I think I had a a question. when did you decide that this was the lifestyle for you, like from a young age or was there, a, you know, a, a moment that you decided and not only, you know, to go into the religion the way you did, but to like a very extreme version that's not right. common around here. Not very normal. It normal. Right. <laughs> right. Right. No. Now, because of the experiences I was having, it would have been natural to have an inclination, but I didn't know anything about monastic life. I lived, I grew up in Cincinnati, Ohio. Uh, you know, huh. my mom and dad were, right, they were loving and wonderful and all that, but they didn't teach me about monastic life. We didn't have any monasteries around us that I knew of. That and, probably wasn't even in the card catalog at the library where I grew up. Nah. Right. <laughs> no, I'm not. It's not in here. <laughs> My brother studied theology in Cincinnati. Yeah. So, so it, it, if it had been around me, there probably would have been a connection to the natural resonance. Like that feels like a fit because I felt so beloved oriented. I mean, I was in this love affair when I was little and it just stayed with me all along. What ended up happening, Gary, was uh, in my late teens, my experiences of the divine began to very much explode. And I became one of those people that probably was fairly ungrounded. You know, everything was blasted open and blasted mm. away. And I was An open wound from everybody's own experiences touching yours. And And there was this sense of sublime bliss interpenetrating my day and I could have been content sitting on a park bench and not eating. I mean, I, you know, it was so all consuming. Wow. And fortunately I was living in Santa Cruz at the time and I was working with the homeless and had some wonderful friends and I had a, an anchor point and I was working and getting some school. But what happened as those experiences were going on is a lot of other phenomena started happening too. Visions, miracles, Clear audience, clairvoyance, like everything was becoming alive on a lot of levels, a lot. And I, I thought, well, 
I should probably have like a spiritual director or something. I should be talking to somebody about all this. Mm. And in my inner knowing, I was like, I know this is of the divine. I know it because I'm changing for the better. You know, my mind was healing. My heart was healing. So I knew it was good what was happening, but it seemed smart and wise to talk with somebody. And I kept looking around and I couldn't find anybody. And then finally, someone said to me, well, there's this really renowned contemplative, you know, I think he was, he might've been a Franciscan. I don't know if he's a priest. I don't know. Mm. And he's in San Jose and I made an appointment to see him. And I thought, well, how am I gonna, I mean, I I felt so young and I was like, how am I going to start telling him all this stuff? I'm like, you know, is he going to lock me up? I mean, (laughs) so so I, I went in, I thought, well, I'll just give him one example. Because what one thing that was happening every day is when I would go into this mission chapel, every time I passed through the doors, my crown chakra, which I didn't know what that was at the time, opened super wide like this. And this white waterfall of light and energy was going whoosh down through Interesting. my head. And I swooned. And I, I, would, I would be, I couldn't hold myself up. And I'd be in that state for a fair amount of time. And I thought, I'll just tell him that experience because then <laughs> I can test the waters. Like, you know, does he get it? Does he not get it? Is it okay for me to share? So I shared it. And he didn't understand at all. He had never had any experiences like that. And he said to me, and this was such a great directional, he said to me, are you sure you're not falling asleep? And, and I just responded because I was so free. I mean, I was like, I had nothing to lose in life. So I was like, oh my gosh, it's the opposite. I have never felt so alive in my whole life. And then mm. what that said to me was that in his not getting it, it evoked within me my own truth around it in a way that, was he gave you an answer with a question yeah and then about the next week after that when i said okay i just won't talk to anybody about these things um somebody one of my housemates put Teresa of avila's autobiography into my hands and she's a 15th century mystic uh i don't know if you don't know of her she's she and john of the cross she is those two are two of an, a small number of Christian mystics who are deeply influential in all faith traditions. Mm. So they cross all the borders because of their experiences and how they talk about them. Somebody gave her an autobiography. And of course, you know, I could feel it. You know how, like, when you get something and you're like, oh man, like, this is something. That happened like an hour ago. It was oh, lunch. Oh, really? No, it was your new computer. Oh, yeah. We got a new computer for the yeah, studio. Just, I got pictures. He was just like, oh. Honestly, it's more art. He was happy. Yeah. His big smile. He did that thing oh, where he clicked his heels up in there. Oh, that's awesome. Right. So just like that, I was reading through it voraciously, and she was having the same experiences that I was. Or I was having the same experiences she was. Not all of them, but enough of them that I was like, oh. Well, she was Carmelite. And then shortly after that, an 18, 1800s Carmelite mystic, her book got put in my hands. And all of a sudden, the Carmelites just kept showing up. And what mm. happened 
spirit is natural. I, they became a part of my life. Just like you are before me, they were before me that really. This has been the story of the last couple of years with the show, everything I work on, everything unfolds a certain way. For me, um, my monastery was a set of headphones and music without anybody telling me I couldn't do it. And it was the first time in my life that I started to feel what it was to be alive. To play music was, it plucked chords within me that I didn't know existed. Oh, I love that. And it, it started to change how I viewed everything. It also allowed me to start understanding language to a degree. And when I say that, it allowed me to realize that it, there's an evolution, right, in our spiritual progression, so to speak. And everybody goes through it, but they go, go through it at a different speed. They might even not get it right this time on the rock, whatever it is. But you learn a language at each of those rungs. And the language is beautiful. It allows you to speak to everybody around you that has made it there. It allows you to speak to the people that are further along with you. However, they can't explain it to you where you are. Mm. That's a language that is only known and not understood because there are no words in that level to explain what's at the other. You can't explain to somebody. You can try, but at the end of the day, they're not going to know until they know. Until they absolutely know, and they're like, oh, shit, that's what they were talking about. Now I get it. I think that's so beautiful. That's what's so great about being a human being is we are experience-oriented. Mm. You know, we're, we're rooted in experience, and there's objectivity and subjectivity and the mysterious way going on within all those experiences. And there are ways we get lit up, and there's a nonverbal grasp of things. And I think that nonverbal grasp applies to so many arenas. We could talk about spirituality, but I think it, it applies to all different realms. Mm. Yeah. It absolutely does. Yes. So if I were to say this to you, what would you explain to everyone? The breath of inspiration arises within us all. <coughs> what does that mean? Again, I, because I'm a poet, um, I'm, I wouldn't try in our short time together to uh, have such a tight explanation. Of Understood. Descriptures, right? So my experience has led me at this point to hold as true that the essential aspect of humanity, of a human being, is pulsing with the ineffable. It's pulsing with the divine. It's pulsing mutual. It's literally pulsing. And as that vibrational thing is happening where the ineffable is coming into form, showing up as you and you and me mm -hmm. and the other creative expressions, as that is happening, there is something we can metaphorically say that is a breath. Because a breath is an exhale, a breath is a, and an inhale. But a breath in the form of the exhale, the breath of inspiration. So the inspiration is arising in this divine pulse. And 
we're the expression of it. So it's like we're the exhale of it. And when we're aligned with that, we find great fulfillment in our lives. I think it's our duty. I like that. Stack on a little duty there. I think it's our duty to, and you can, uh, he said duty. I was waiting for him to say something like that. (laughs) (laughs) You're much lighter. You're sitting a little back through my keep here. Um, That said, uh, I think it is our duty to do what we were put here to do, right? And we know what it is internally. Each and every day we get up, we feel an inclination to be a better human. And I think that it is our duty to share whatever gifts we have that we were given, the creativity, the art, the way to speak to each other, the way to love each other, that's something that should freely flow. It's it's our calling, right? Mm, 100%. It's a path that can help the fear that makes that challenging dissolve by the nature of the love of hearing the call. It's greedy not to. <laughs> I know. I know you put it in more, more funny I, I say stupid shit. <laughs> I, uh, I understand why disassociation can happen so frequently in us human beings. Because it can be really, really scary to surrender our whole selves. That even cliff though, is a curb. Even though we're not the ultimate author, even though it's all happening and we're just part of it anyway. Nonetheless, there's some kind of co-creative agency that happens when we really surrender into things. Um, But it is, it's really powerful. Yeah, thank you for bringing it out that way. So why don't you tell us, since we're getting closer to uh, the end of the hour, I want to give you the opportunity because I brought that up and I said that the breath of inspiration arises within all. That's actually a chapter within your most recent book. And I want to give you an opportunity to explain what that book is and give people the chance to um, pick it up and listen to what it is that you're explaining um, because you're speaking to teachings from this book. Um, You know, things that you're explaining in there, you're explaining in this episode. And I think uh, if you could give us some kind of a uh, understanding, that would be awesome. You know, it's got a lot of layers to it, but ultimately the title is... uh, comes from my experience of everything as grace and the trickiness of that postulation because it's easy to throw words out there like that inauthentically Mm. or want to hold them as these yeah of course that's true but not really believe like not really not really go the vulnerable mile of accepting it as true and seeing what the implications are in life. So it, it's a postulation. So one of, that's one of the foundational messages that I invite the reader to actually explore themselves, not just, to, not just to buy it because I say it. And I give an example of, uh, and my TED Talk is, can give people a little taste. So if you're listening and you're like, oh, I'm not much of a reader, well, it's in audio and it's in my voice, but you can listen to my TED Talk on my website and it uses the story of when I had an inspiration arising within me at 29 years old when I was out back of the monastery to build the permanent monastery. And I gave this big yes. And I know you can relate because I gave a yes 
thinking, yes, may it be done, not yes, I'll do it. How often like we get an inspiration and we give this big yes and we have no idea what we said yes to. And then it starts showing me up like, oh. Well, that's the show. What that meant. <laughs> I ended up being the general contractor, one of the principal fundraisers, and one of the designers with my architects of a 17,000 square foot mission style monastery that ended up where we were only donated land. We didn't even have underground. Mm. Uh, we signed all the underground. We brought in three-phase line. I was downloaded with the capacity to talk with engineers, to work with shop drawings, to organize all the crews. And we ended debt-free with this multi-million dollar monastery built. So it takes that story, which is really pretty dynamic. <laughs> And I use that story as, a, as an example and a metaphor for what I'm talking about and what I experienced in my own evolution. Mm. Because there were ways that things were bam, big, flow, synchronicity, flow, synchronicity. And then within all that, not everybody was on board with the miracle happening. You know, it hits triggers and it hits confusion. It hits mm. doubt. Makes some people turn around because they don't want to look at what they're not doing. Yeah, there's so many layers to it. Oh, it's it's amazing. Yeah, so that's what the book is about. I love it. And you can, you can get an ebook, print, and audio. And I have a slight cold right now, but normally my voice is much more clear. Well, I did buy it. I um I read oh. some of it. I, I think that uh, normally I would have read it all, but we've had a lot of stuff going on. We've got uh, events coming up, but I did read through it. And... Honestly, your story speaks volumes to me because when you say that monastery and that being a road that you've never been down and all of these different understandings that you were required to have. Um, same thing with podcasting and trying to grow this. I don't have a background in audio engineering. I don't have a background in graphic design. I don't have a background in music. Got none of that. Um, this all came from so many panic attacks and realizing that I was not living to my fullest capability as myself wow. and stood up one day and said, I'm supposed to be giving back in some way, shape or form. That's how it's got to be. I don't know how it's going to come to fruition. I don't know how it's going to be, but this is what I'm going to do. And I've gotten up every single day for the last four and a half years I come straight into the studio and I get to work and it's not work for the first time in my life. It's something that I'm mad. I'm not doing when I'm doing something else. Oh, what is that? Right. And, but that's divine inspiration. I think it was always there since I was a kid. Shut up. That's what you were told, but you're told to shut up by people because they are not free within themselves enough to have the same ability to speak openly as you, even a child's mouth. People tell children to shut up because they're, they're showing an example of the inhibitions that we have now that prevent us from having that level of happiness. And it just graduates, it graduates, it graduates. We want to point fingers at the happy people and tell them that they're doing something wrong. It's not the case. True, true. Haters hate. Yeah, it's like there's certain things that we're supposed to do. An accountant, plumber, like you either you learn a trade or you go to college. Like you don't become a monk or you don't become a musician or you don't become a you know you don't become a 
poet. Like we're not, we're told those aren't jobs. Yeah, yeah the just, executive yeah. producer of you know uh, uh, combat sports. Yeah, you're not. You can go to get a four year degree. Just you know, they were just told like this is the way you're supposed to do it: military, learn a trade, or you go get a degree. And there's the spiritual stuff. That's not a job. Art. That's not a job. Entertainment. That's not. You know, it's like we're still told that. Like, you know, I don't know of any kids. The person that doesn't believe in themselves is going to be the one to tell others that every single time. Yeah, it's just like sit down, conform, like answer these questions at every Friday, the test of this one book, and then if you do that good, you get to the next grade, and the book gets a little harder, and then you know that's pretty much what we're told, and then. It's weird because you don't hear about it much. Like, you know, you just dismiss it before even learning anything about it and how it could actually help you. I think one question I did have, I'm from Ohio as well. Um, and I've lived in California and I've, uh, some of my best friends are from Santa Cruz and they're much different than my friends in Cleveland in a lot of ways, basically how they're brought up. Like, do you think that helped? It's a much freer place. There's much more open thinking there, at least in my experience than like would it be in Ohio. So do you think that being in that environment helped foster some things, you know, that, you know, the paths that you took? You know, looking at it, I'm, I'm sure it did. I know that when I went out there, I had got an intuition. I had gone to high school in Florida. We had moved. And, and uh, I had my senior year, go to California, you'll be a fish in water. It was just kind of like this little... And I had not, you know, this is pre-computer. I'm 56. So it's pre-internet. It's pre-knowing anything about these places. And I found that to be true. And I think one of the biggest, one of the biggest helps to me was this live, if there was a live and let live perspective, there was a certain respect mm. for the autonomy of each person's journey in a way. That's important. That let me relax into myself a bit more. So I think that that was definitely influential. I saw my friends from that area. They're all very diverse and like a surfer laid back kind of place. And, and I don't hear much about fighting or racism or, you know, or discrimination, like any of that stuff there. It's like they're all pretty like just chill people. Very chill, hippie-ish. I like that you said they're able to. You're able to pursue your own view, your own persona, there without feeling restricted by other people's judgments. That's huge. To get the opportunity to be in that suspended state where you can have that love affair with yourself and figure out who you are without feeling like you're being, you know, put under a, a light and examined or told that these particular traits that you're exhibiting are not, you know, something that everybody should be doing. To have that non-judgmental or that judgment-free zone to explore your spirituality is so important. And I say that only because we all have that capability every single day, and that's meditation. It is a, it is a powerful tool, isn't it? It creates the exact same environment that Santa Cruz does on your back porch. <laughs> yes. Make, you should come up with some fun t-shirts or something. Yeah, we, I, he's got, I've started drawing some of them. Like, he's got all kind of stuff that is visually going to look good. <laughs> I, I speak in metaphors, anecdotes, analogies, and things like that, because I found that, you know, we're not all blessed with the same set of books, you know, to grow up and learn from, but we're all 
blessed with a set of eyes to take things in and we're allowed to take context clues and use references. So if I can go ahead and put those together and make them palatable so that they're understandable, it's a big difference. You know, I use those metaphors like soup. Don't let people season your soup because you can't unseason it. You let people tell you shit, throw it in there. You're screwed. You're going to have to make so much soup that you get rid of that flavor. It isn't going to work. Great. I love that. That's awesome. Yeah, that's I'll quote favorite. you when I, when I use some of yours. Oh, that would be awesome to be quoted. Yeah. Holy crap. And for something good, not like you're a Jason. Yeah. <laughs> the soup one I like. Some of the other ones I don't understand. Right, we're getting there. We're getting there. I, I use uh, meditation as a snow globe. I think that uh, our reality is one where we reach outside of the glass and grab thoughts that are collectively shared and we pull it in and whatever thought we grabbed that was already existent for everybody to choose from, we bring it into our globe and it turns it the color of that thought for as long as we hold on to it. The moment that we let that thought go back outside of the globe, our globe clears back up. But typically we grab and grab and grab and grab when in reality we've been sitting in a clear area the whole time. I love it. It's a great image. Yeah. Thank you. Little by little. Well, I know that you are a very important person and probably have another interview to get to. So I don't want to hold you up because you did give me a hard stop. So I want to be very respectful of that. And it's a delightful conversation for sure. Amazing. I'm super excited uh, to have met you and to uh, hear your story. Um, so much more that I want to ask you and and discuss. We're going to have to get back together sometime. Um, I feel like there's a lot of similarities. I don't think that we have to have the same religious path to have the same congruent experiences in our own, you know, world. And I see a lot of things that you've done that really resonate with me. And uh, I appreciate you having the courage and the strength and vulnerability to stand up and, and tell everybody your life story so that they can learn from it and, you know, write some notes in their own book. I love that. Thank you. Thank you for that affirmation. It was awesome being with both of you. And yes, I'd love to visit again, have another wonderful conversation. And yeah, it's been really lovely. It's Gary. Really fun. really fun. Do you have anything you want to wrap up with? When was the last time you had uh, chili? Cincinnati style chili. <laughs> you know what? I was just in Lexington, Kentucky, and I didn't get to, and I went up to Cincinnati. I didn't get to have any. Yeah. Oh, isn't that Skyline chili? Yeah, it's Gold Star Skyline is like the Bloods and the Crips in Cincinnati. Like, uh, you pick one. Totally, yeah. right? Right. <laughs> I didn't get to, but I think it was about six months ago. I visit my family in that area twice a year. And uh, I always make a point to get a, a five-way yeah. at Skyline with the onions. A five-way? Yeah, the, the onions add the fifth level. Uh, polarizing. See, I can't eat raw onions. They smell like they smell like armpits to me. I'd have to get a four-way. Four-way. <laughs> There's a skyline about an hour from here. Oh, there you go. Florida. There's like three. A little room. That's because Ohio and Florida have like a train track that goes directly between the two. I feel like they're they're like kind of what do I say kissing cousins? <laughs> Ohio and Florida. <laughs> Oh, thank you so much, Kimberly. And um, remember, everybody, be cool and keep learning. Bye.